You're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we get to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Keach, and we are broadcasting today from the Inventa Capital Studio. Now, today on the show, I had the chance to sit down with none other than the executive chairman of EMR Capital, Owen Haggerty. Owen has spent a lifetime in the mining space. He has done everything from build up junior exploration companies to multi-billion dollar producers. He's worked for majors and now he is leading and growing a major private equity firm. And we get into it all in this podcast. We talk about his views on the future of the sector, which commodities he's focused on, how he chooses assets, what investors should be thinking about before allocating their own capital, many, many things. And if you even have a passing interest in the mining or commodity sector, if you are a technical person, if you are an investor, if you are an entrepreneur, you owe it to yourself to listen to this podcast. And I am certainly going to be listening into it at least one more time just to pick up some of the things that Owen has said. Very, very valuable. So without further ado, let me please introduce Owen Hegarty from EMR Capital. All right, Owen, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Jamie. Lovely to be here. Yeah. And for viewers at home, can you let us know where here is? Because I'm in Vancouver right now and it's about uh, one in the afternoon. Where are you? Right now, I'm in Melbourne, uh, sunny Melbourne uh, in Australia, Jamie. So one of the goals of the podcast for 2021 has been able to, has been to get a bigger presence of Australian mining people on here. We've overdone the Canadian space. We've got a few Cana <laughs> Americans in there as well, but we've barely touched the shores of Australia. So for a largely North American audience, if, no one, if they haven't heard the name Owen Hagerty before, can you give us the sort of 15-second elevator pitch of who you are and what you do? Okay, thank you, uh, Jamie. We'll do that. And, and we, we still believe that Melbourne is the centre of the mining universe, of course, despite what you <laughs> Canadians and, and Americans have to say from time to time. Uh, but we do have a very big conference down here that, that tries to uh, rival PDAC, and it's called the... Um, uh, you know, the Melbourne Mining Conference, and it's at the end of each year. So, and and you will remember, actually, that, that mining in Australia pretty much started here in Victoria. So that's why still got a big background of mining here, including, you know, the bigger the bigger groups, the BHPs and so on, have still got, you know, headquarters pretty much down here in mm -hmm. Melbourne. Okay, so my background, Jamie, very, very simple. I've been in the mining industry all of my uh, working life, which now spans, you know, 40 to 50 years uh, type of thing. Uh, I joined Rio Tinto, or it was called CRA in those days, straight from university. Uh, why, why mining? Well, probably more to do with boys and toys and trucks and shovels uh, type of thing. Uh, CRA was expanding. It was, it had overseas connectivity. Uh, it was a growth company. And that's why I thought that would be, and they were looking for 
people in those days, you know, looking for graduates. They would actually, they'd come out to the universities and institutions and, you know, with the, with the flags and the banners and the showcase and so on and so forth. I mean, in a way, fairly easy to get a job at that time. Yeah. Right now, it's actually much, much, much tougher. So, you know, I feel I was a bit lucky there. So with I spent 24 years with Rio Tinto all over the shop, you might say, all over the, the world and uh, multiple uh, of their companies and commodities and, and countries. So very lucky to have that sort of career uh, moving around there with CRA. Uh, you know, lovely people, lovely company and so on. They're a little bit sort of in the news at the moment, but, you know, they've got a good assets and good people and, and good culture. So they certainly get through that. And, and uh, uh, Jamie, at the end of that, I was the CEO of a number of their businesses and then decided to, given my Asian experience in particular, and also uh, a little bit of a bent towards copper and gold, uh, we decided to start our own business between myself and a few of our, our friends and supporters. We started a company called Oxiana, mm-hmm. and we, we grew that company from a, uh, from a few million dollars to a few billion dollars here on the, on the ASX. Uh, you know, one of those overnight successes that took about 15 years or, or something like that. Uh, but it was Australia, Asia Pacific, copper, gold, you know, development uh, business. And I was the CEO of that for all of that length of time. So that was the second phase. And really, uh, third phase has been here pretty much with uh, EMR Capital. And we are a private equity uh, mining group. Uh, again, copper and gold is a focus, as well as uh, in the bulk commodities, we do potash, something that uh, your Canadian uh, people will be very familiar with, uh, as well as met coal, uh, also very familiar there uh, in Canada. So those three phases, I do a few other bits and pieces of things, a few side shows from time to time, Jamie. I was the I was a non-executive director and, and vice chairman of Fortescue Metals here in Australia, you will you will know them, the big iron ore people, um, and I'm of course again when you've been in the industry for as long as me and still vertical, uh, you know there are various uh, government agencies and industry bodies who are looking for a bit of advice uh, from time to time. So that's I, I do some of those things, but my main game and aim right now is uh, is EMR Capital. Okay, that was a great intro, and I've got a bunch of pieces of paper in front of me, full of questions and topics, and you basically touched on every one of those in here. <laughs> so we're gonna get into a bit more detail, but I wanna start um, with a bit of a weird question. And I asked our mutual friend, Craig Parry, what yeah. I should ask you about, what I should touch on in this conversation. And he said, ask him this, I hear you live in seat 23B. Has COVID and the inability to fly left you essentially homeless? What does that question mean? Does that, if it means anything to you at all? Um, <laughs> well, I think the it's it's to do obviously with the impact of uh, COVID and and what's happened. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, one one of the things that um, I worked with Craig for a long period of time and still do. He he really is also an EMR uh, founder. Um, and of course, you, you're forever, as I say to people, you spend a sort of a third of your time uh, doing your day job, a third of your time telling people about the company and, and you know, and half of your time on an aeroplane type of thing. So you're forever doing that, whether it's visiting your existing operations, new businesses that you're looking to get into, or our investors, Jamie. And a lot of our investors 
In fact, the, our investors sort of dominated in North America, domiciled there. So we have to spend a lot of time there, just bring them up to date, you know, mm -hmm. raising further funds and, and that type of thing. So we do spend a lot of time in the air and uh, and COVID, COVID has cut us back a little bit there. We've, we've been a bit, uh, been, a, been a bit in, interdicted there on the, uh, on the aeroplane travel type of thing, but, but, you know, we'll get that, we'll get that started. One of the things, of course, Jamie, about COVID, and you will hear this from from everybody, uh, is that it really has brought the future forward, particularly in your business, right? The whole communications business has now come at us so much faster. You wow. know, it's just phenomenal. There was a revolution going on, and we've now got another tier, you know. And, you know, that's something I actually wanted to talk to you about, not a particular the communications business. And I... Um I feel for you, or I feel for me, rather, on that one, because when we started, I was about one of the only mining podcasts that existed, and now there's about 100 of us, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's birthed a lot of our competitors, which is good, and it's good for the space. But, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot in my own life, in our own business, is do you think COVID is a, is it a, a net loss for the mining industry in terms of the challenges that it's created for operation? And, or is it a net gain for the mining industry in terms of, obviously, we've had a great run in gold over the last year. Uh, you know, I think people are, are waking up heavily to the importance of metals, particularly battery metals and the metals associated with electrification. In a lot of ways, you know, for me and my own investment portfolio, COVID has been very helpful with, with what's going on in the mining space. I know that is maybe sort of a controversial way to look at it, and it's you know it's caused a lot of problems around the world and across the board. But within the mining and metals sector, it seems like it's focused an attention on the importance and the essential essentiality of, of a lot of the metals that we're looking for. How has that played into your experience running a large uh, private equity firm? Yeah, well, absolutely right. So I couldn't agree more with you there in terms of bringing the future forward and, and putting into focus the whole metal business. Now, of course, uh, in terms of net loss, you know, it was only 12 months ago, Jamie, that we're all uh, running around wondering what what what's going to happen next, you know, scrambling to get back to our original destinations and various other things and wondering what was happening. Then we were then we were talking with people about well, what sort of a recovery is this going to be? You know, are we going to recover for a start? Is it going to be V-shaped, W-shaped, L-shaped, Nike, whoosh-shaped, inverse square root-shaped recovery? What are we going to have, you know? And so people were speculating on that. Well, 12 months later, we now know it is a, it's a V-shaped recovery. It's a bit of a jagged V-shaped recovery, but, you know, it's a recovery. So, so really the market is actually telling us that we, we, we've, we got through that. We're going to get through that. Uh, and we, not only are we going to get through, we're going to come out the other side stronger. Uh, and, and certainly you've seen commodities really take off and it's both both demand side spurred by continued by infrastructure spend and fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's also spurred some, some, somewhat by the supply side in terms of supply has been uh, impacted there. But you've seen, you know, oil go from twenty or thirty dollars to sixty dollars. You've seen copper come from two dollars to four dollars. You've got zinc from eighty cents to a dollar thirty. You know, and iron ore. I mean, iron ore is heading to the moon. It's come from thirty. 30 or 40 dollars to 170 for goodness sake you know so that's telling you uh that people are going to be looking for more and more of those commodities just just going back to um the covid impact remember 
I mean, in a way, we've been a bit lucky in the mining industry. I mean, mm. we are remote uh, operations generally, so, so therefore, uh, you know, you don't have the, the 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 close connectivity that you do in the city for a for a uh, in, in respect of a pandemic. And also, mining operations are always ready for this type of emergency, right? The occupational health and safety system policies procedures uh, at mine sites. So you're always ready for this sort of thing, right? So so therefore we have been less impacted now we've been impacted of course with the roster system and getting people here and there and getting goods here and there and so on and so forth but we've been operating definitely at north of north of 75 percent capacity right Be mm. better than being in the in the travel and some of those sort of retail facing industries just terrible they've all been sort of smashed yeah. in a way hopefully they'll come back but but you know we we've actually been uh, you know less impacted definitely impacted uh, there, but really in good shape and now getting ready for uh, what is this, you know, this new wave, if you like. And I suppose, Jamie, your, your question there in terms of, well, has the future been for, brought forward? Has it been brought forward for metals? Is there, a, is there a greater focus on the commodity side? Absolutely no question about it. And taking copper as a very good example, and you mentioned, uh, you know, communications and so on and so forth, taking copper, not only are you going to get the all of the, the demand factors there for copper, which have been very strong anyway, it's got multiple uh, uses, it's now got this extra burst, this extra spurt of growth in respect of the whole renewables, EV, battery metals revolution that's occurring, you know, and there's not one forecaster, not one broker that isn't now putting out, you know, greater growth, uh, you know, demand growth forecasts uh, for copper and the other battery metals, including cobalt and lithium and graphite and, and nickel, of course, and yeah. so on and so forth. So that's a, you know, we see that obviously as a very positive uh, thing for the industry, Jamie. So. I have a lot of questions back in between there, but I'm going to skip ahead because you've touched on something that I really want to talk about and sort of this, this importance of battery metals and copper in the sort of electrification of the world and the, what, I'm, what we're kind of calling this sort of the green energy revolution. Yes. And when I, when I sort of think about this historically, when you look at energy versus mining, you have sort of material versus energy. And energy tends to be, as a, as a market, you know, an order of magnitude bigger than mining and more valuable it's in the world. But the way things are changing, you know, mining is in a weird situation right now where a lot of things that were kind of mining products are now also energy products. When you look at, you know, the essentiality of, of battery storage and things like lithium, things like copper, things like nickel, you know, the line is kind of blurred, I, I think now. And do you think the size and the value of that this portion of the industry is going to reflect that sort of these these energy valuations. Do you think we're going to see massive runs in copper, in nickel, in these essential minerals? Definitely. So I couldn't agree more. And and you're starting to see the uh, you know the beginning of it uh, right now. Well, there's no question in the whole you know how do you put it the whole decarbonisation if you like, whether it's the replacement of uh, of met coal. Uh, you know, in in the in blast furnaces, these these things are actually going to take a very very long time. No question about that. There's going to be transition. It's a bit like the whole coal uh, equation, whether it's thermal coal or met coal. You know, it's going to it, it, yes, the transition is on. So there's no question about that. It is going to happen, uh, but it's going to take some 
some time. And the and the winners there, of course, are going to be the, you know, as you say, the battery metals and electrification and so on. So the world is going to continue to electrify, no question about that, right? Uh, and it's going to continue to have this massive uh, communications uh, revolution. So no question about that. And you need all of those uh, metals and materials to do that. Also, Jamie, see, we, we look at all of this in the in the context of well, you know, what 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 is the future for these commodities? You know, that have just taken on a in a way a bit of a new burst. Now, we see that you're going to see multiple decades of continued growth. You've got it's it's led by China, other parts of Asia, India, rest of the developing world. They're all looking to get onto that super highway of economic. Uh, growth and prosperity and and your business the communications business has really given that a spurt over the past 20 or 30 years people know what's going on around the world mm -hmm. you know they want to be involved they want to they want to improve and 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 so that's what's happening and and the the winners in all of that uh you know are going to be uh, are going to be those metals that that we're talking about because you do need you continue to need steel for infrastructure you continue to need it for further development and so on and you continue to need copper and all of those things that we've just talked about for all of those that, that great uh you know rebuild and so on now it doesn't mean doesn't mean jamie that you're not going to have humps and bumps and troughs and so on along the way here yeah right? we we went through one 10 years ago with the uh with the gfc we've just been through one with uh with COVID. so you know you they will come and go no question about that but the direction and the force as far as we're concerned are perfectly clear well, an interesting sort of analog to that is I was reading the other day how the transition from firewood to coal took about 100 years in Europe before <laughs> coal replaced firewood as like the primary source of, of heat at the time. And I think it's going to happen a lot faster than 100 years for us. But, you know, I, I think people who think coking coal and even, even, th even thermal coal and oil and gas are going to turn off tomorrow night or next year or even in the next decade are probably jumping the gun a little bit on that one as well. Uh, definitely. A lot, a lot of work going on, no question. But the, but as I say, the direction and the force are clear. Right? That, that, that is now abundantly clear. There's, there's, the, you, that, the trend is there and it's gathering pace. So, and there's so much work going on, so much research going on and so on and so forth. We've got, we've got decarb is coming at us, right? So there's no yeah. worries about that. It's all part of that whole uh, you know, ESG uh, focus and so on and so forth. And, and we're responding to that. We're, uh, and in a way, we've been, been at it for some time uh, in terms of the way we continue to improve our business. But, but, but business will respond at, and is responding, you know, to all of that. So I, I want to talk about that, um, how EMR is responding to that, how it's changed your focus. But I think for people at home, it would go a long way for us to define, you know, what is private equity and how does it work specifically within the mining sector? Because often it's a little bit different than you might see in, in, in other sectors. Do you have a broad definition of, of private equity for people? Well, yes, I suppose we do in a way. I mean, it's it's different from public equity in the sense that we're, we tend to be not listed. Mm -hmm. uh, so the public equity markets, you've got the BHPs all the way through to the junior guys in, in our space. So we, we tend to be private and we prefer to have uh, private companies. It doesn't mean you won't list them 
eventually ipo them and all of that sort of thing but but you start out uh, private that's that, that's one thing uh, the second thing and there are a number of private equity firms in the mining space not too many not too many um one of the reasons is that the industry is as you know somewhat volatile so things go up and down a bit you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other reason is that private equity tends to be a a, a sort of 10 to 12 to 15 year money as opposed to building BHP and other companies is what, what, what we've done in the past, you, you're going forever, right? Mm. So you, you, the, the future's sort of not limited from that perspective. In private equity, it is because people, our investors, uh, you know, trust us with their, their commitment for a 10 to 15 year fund. So you, you're limited, limited by that. So, and in the, in the mining space, as you know, uh, you know, getting projects, getting, finding projects, developing them up, getting them permitted, getting them into production can take, you know, a long time. So therefore you, you don't have uh, too much room from that perspective. So, so, so it is, there's not that many of them. We're a little bit different in the sense that we're control people. You know, we like to be in charge. We've gone to a lot of trouble to put together really, really good people with long, strong, deep operational experience and, and background. So we've gone to that trouble. So I say we're not we're not control people because we're pathological control freaks. We're control people because you know we've got the we've got the experience and so on. And and you really have to be in the you know, on the field or in the coach's box yeah. to to optimize your investors' returns. And that's something I wanted to ask you about because, you know, looking at this from the outside, I've seen you guys, you know, you're often buying projects, buying mines outright, owning them 100%, operating or building them out privately. Many yep. private equity firms uh, in the mining and resource space, some of your competitors that people will know, they seem to, to utilize a hybrid model where often they'll yep. own... 30, 40, 70% of a company that's publicly listed, it has sometimes other funds in, sometimes retail investors, some combination of the two. Um, you know, do you have a feel for what works best? Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen, particularly in the downturns, you know, it's, it's quite challenging, it looks from the outside to me, for private equity firms who own a portion of a publicly listed company that's getting beaten up on the market and <laughs> it's getting no love and investors are selling and you can't bring in other investors because it's hard when one group owns so much, you know, do, do you guys do any of that hybrid model or are you purely private focused own hundred percent, et cetera? Well, it's, uh, we do, we do hybrid in the sense of, uh, we do have 50, 50 partners, for example, mm -hmm. we do have other partners. So, uh, of course we've got our own investors, our own LPs, but then the group of people that we have worked with and invested with over a period of time. So sort of co-investor types, um, and, and the hybrid with some in the public market, I mean, it's a bit hard to avoid the public equity markets because most of the mining companies are listed one way or the other. Yeah. So, of course, you can get involved and, and delist them, I suppose, or take out the whole company. Uh, we prefer to actually put the money into the ground and develop it rather than take, take companies out. Uh, so, look, it's a little bit on the horses for courses side, Jamie. What, one, of, one of the things about uh, PE uh, is that you must you must be absolutely vigilant and diligent and, uh, and and focused on the work that you do in the due diligence side. In other words, when you're actually in your pipeline, you, you must work so hard in there to make sure that you get everything right or as many things right as absolutely possible because you're not BHP, you're not Rio Tinto. You can't, you can't have a bad performer hiding behind a good performer. You know, you're sort of naked here with each of those investments. 
elephants, a little bit, little bit silo style. So they must have the tons, they must have the grade, you know, you must have the right people, must be in the right location. So you've got to be absolutely rigorous uh, about that. And that that is something that that's why we need, Jamie, that's why we need people uh, who've had that experience, who've, you know, uh, and, and the scars to prove it, you know, to, to ensure uh, that you're actually going to do it. Now, the rewards, of course, can be spectacular, uh, but, you know, the, the, the work has to go in in a very vigorous and rigorous way at the very beginning, if that mm -hmm. makes sense to you. Yes, it does. And, you know, when you talk about the importance of having the right people, what, what do these people mean? Are these people that are technical professionals that have spent decades working on mine sites or in big companies actually sort of building and operating assets on the ground? Or who, who do you look for to build out your team? Yes, yes. Well, all of the above, all of those people. But again, uh, one of the one of the things I feel a bit lucky about is that having been in it for some time, having worked at the big end of town, having worked at the small end of town, now having worked in in PE, uh, and and all the while talking with investors, all the while uh, working with a whole range of different uh, people, not only within our own organisation but outside the organisation in terms of contractors and suppliers and advisors and consultants and so on and so forth. So between myself and Tony Manini and Jason and the rest of the team here, you know, the senior team at EMR Capital got terrific, uh, terrific, uh, you know, networks, whether they be individuals or advisors, consultants and so on. And so we're lucky to be able to do that and, and bring all of those people together. So we think that, you know, we think that that gives us very significant advantage when it comes to PE, when it comes to improvement uh, on, on our particular model, Jamie. So when you say, what, what, what do you look for? Well, we look for, you know, background, we look for experience, we look for people who, uh, you know, equally focused with the strong, strong uh, culture of, of, uh, of focus uh, on, on getting the job in hand type of thing. That's what we look for. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned you'd worked at the big end of town, places like Rio. You've, you know, you've started a junior yeah. company and built it. How does it, how do you, how do you evaluate and choose assets that you want to buy or invest in differently when you're running a mining company and operating money mining company versus a private equity firm? Is it the same thing? Is it a different methodology? How does that differ? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's much the same, but as I say, with 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 PE, you have to be absolutely singularly focused. So you you've got to do that, uh, and and you 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 don't have stock to work with. So you're not a you're not a gold company or a listed company that's 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 actually got shares that can use as a currency as opposed to cash. So your your precious shareholders' funds are going to be applied in this uh, this acquisitions. Uh, not, not currency type of thing. Okay, so we have a uh, we have a very clear model, uh, Jamie. When we're going in, we're what we call the rule of eight. Right? It must have the tons. It must have the grade. It must have a conventional process. It must have quality. It must have long life, low cost, lots of upside, and be in a stable and secure domain. So it must have all of those things, or you're going to be able to convert it 
you know, in some of those areas where it might not have it to begin with type of thing. So, mm -hmm. so we use that uh, rigorous model. And then once we make an acquisition, you know, the clock starts ticking. So you have to be absolutely uh, rigorous in terms of the way in which you're going to make the improvements, because at the end of the day, uh, you have to go. So that's, that's different to the BHPs, the Rio Tintos and Oxiana, because, you know, you've got to get in, make your acquisition, do your work, and then you've ultimately got to go from there, whether you go in one fell swoop or you transmigrate gradually over a period of time by an IPO or something like that. But that's a that's a key difference to, you know, company building people, if you like. Yeah, the, I guess the, the clock's ticking much, uh, much faster in that respect. Yes. Yeah, faster for me, too. <laughs> so, OK, so. A lot of people who are going to be listening to this are not in private equity. They don't work for mining companies. They're investors yeah. at home that have an interest in mining stocks. You know, you just mentioned these these eight factors, sort of grade, tonnage, jurisdiction. Yeah. Are these the sort of things that they should be considering too, that, you know, that I should be considering when I'm buying a stock just in my personal account? Or yeah. or does it does it differ very greatly? Would you say that these are things that any mining investor should be thinking of? Well, they should be, but the key you know, well, number of keys, I suppose. I mean, the sort of things that we've just been talking about, tons and grade and so on and so forth, they're, they're technical, they're visible uh, and, and so on. What, what are you actually looking for? You're looking for people who have actually, you know, been there before, done it before, ha had had success. So, you, so you're looking for uh, the, the folks there uh, that you can trust, whether they've got the grey hair or the no hair or what, what are, whatever it happens to be type of thing. But you're also looking for uh, inside a company, it's a bit harder to identify, but you're looking for a very, very strong culture here. You're looking for a, for a culture uh, of success uh, and, and, and sustainability. Right? So you want, you want people in this industry that, are, that have got ingrained into their uh, you know, into your systems, policies and procedures uh, and into the individual's uh, behaviour and performance, a very, very strong culture of sustainable performance. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for a one hit uh, one day here. Uh, you're looking for people who are going to build businesses going to go forever, whether they're PE or, or separate companies, because yeah. ultimately you want to create a business in PE that will go on for a very, very long time. And to, to actually ensure, to guarantee uh, sustainability, you have to have not only all those physical things that we're talking about in terms of tons of grade and process and so on, but you have to have that, uh, you know, strong culture uh, of, of, of focus, uh, of involvement, of inclusiveness, uh, so that you mentioned, you mentioned a bit earlier people working together in teams. That is the most powerful thing. One of the most powerful lessons that I've ever, ever learned, really. It's all right for me to bang on about this and bang on about that, but we're nothing without being able to work with other people. That's, that's where you draw, uh, you know, a serious performance and serious success from. Whether, whether it's just the people within our own sort of leadership group, whether it's the people within our own uh, uh, companies and so on, or other stakeholders in the business, whether you're they're the consumers, the suppliers and customers and so on. And most importantly, Jamie, the people uh, that, are, that are in the in the valley, that are in the community, that are in the province where you work. Mm -hmm. right? Because we are we don't we don't we're not a pop up sort of McDonald's store down the down the street here. Right. In Vancouver or Melbourne, we are working out in in remote 
communities. That, that's what we're doing. And, and we're changing, in some cases, changing people's lives forever. So therefore, you know, to have sustainability, to have success, to have a long-term competitive business, you must have that very, very close uh, relationship, confidence, trust, cooperation of all of those people. So you must actually understand that you are nothing without that. And, you know, when you talk about sustainable performance, is there a way to, if not fully evaluate that, get an idea for it from the outside? If you're an investor that can't go and tour the head office or the mine sites, if you're reading about these things, then what's the best way for someone to do that? Is it look at someone's past performance? Is, is, is there any other things you can do that help to get an idea of what's kind of going on behind the scenes and whether they have this culture and uh, an ability in place to actually deliver the results you're hoping for? Look, I think so. I mean, apart from the annual report and the sustainability report and calling your broker and reading all of the, the, the information, one of, one of the things that we, we, we look for when we're looking at um, uh, investing is, is people, you, you want people who are going to be completely open, transparent uh, and, and honest with you, right? One of the things, and your business has shown us, enabled us to do that, right? The whole communication revolution, nothing is a secret anymore, right? So... <laughs> All of this information is available. So you want people who, who are riding that wave, right, who are saying, we've got to get the communications out. We've got to be yeah. transparent. We're not being transparent because the regulator told us to be transparent. We're being transparent because it helps us so much, right? It builds trust. It builds trust and it builds respect, not only within your own family uh, group, if you like, but it builds trust and respect out amongst all of those stakeholders. So they're the sort of, they're the sort of things you want. You, you know, so somebody can, if they, if they fire me through an email, for example, uh, you know, we're very happy. We we must answer it. You know, so anytime any of that sort of thing happens, the great, the great communicators in our business, you know. Uh, Fabulous communicators, people like uh, Robert Friedland, people like uh, Andrew Forrest and so on. One of, one of the reasons they've been successful is that they are great communicators, right? They are the, they're the master blasters of communication, to, mm -hmm. use a, to use a cricketing term. Viv Richards was the master blaster. Yeah, yeah. These guys, are the, these guys are the actual master blasters of communication. So I'm very happy to follow that. You mentioned Andrew Forrester. He's the chairman of Fortescue. At one point, you were the vice chairman there. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So that is not a role we, we see often in Canadian companies. What, what is the role of vice chairman in, in a company, a big, you know, multi-billion dollar major company like Fortescue? Oh, well, I suppose it's a one, it's a bit of a recognition of, of seniority, uh, you know, age, uh, respect for age. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. Uh, another is, I suppose, duration uh, as opposed to enduring duration in terms of uh, I'd been there a bit longer than than some of the others. Uh, but also there are times when Andrew as the chairman, of course, Andrew is a chairman and major owner driver. Yes. So from time to time, he's got to step out of the out of the out of the room, out of the meeting and so on and so forth. So you need vice chairman to come in and take over that sort of position. Uh, and, you know, the the chairman from time to time will uh, will deputize to the vice chairman to either run a meeting, do this or do that type of thing. So it's a sort of a, like a vice captain in yeah. footy, if you like. 
And you mentioned Andrew as one of these sort of master communicators and his ability to, to lean into transparency. You know, what did, what did you pick up from someone like that who, who built this such a major company, is still at the helm of it, he's still pretty young. Uh, what is he doing differently that's allowed him to do that over all these years that the average mining CEO or chairman is not doing that many of his competitors haven't figured out? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, he's, he's a great uh, mining entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. He's a great Australian and, and he's a great bloke. One of the one of the keys with the success of Fortescue has been that terrific persistence. In other words, the, the drive, uh, the persistence to get it done and, and you know, just sheer uh, hard work and perseverance really by Andrew. And and very importantly, he, he actually engenders that or I found that that was engendered in the whole of the team, whether it was the board, senior management group, the whole company, you know, and, and singular focus. This is what we are going to do. You know, this is the yeah. vision. This is the set of strategic objectives. This is this is the plan. This is how we're going to get there. And this is the glue. This is the culture. A very, very powerful culture of persistence, of perseverance, of openness, honesty, transparency, going for these goals. And the reason I brought this up is because Fortescue re recently announced they're going to be basically transitioning to renewable power, right? I think they're starting with their iron ore operations. I mean, this is a massive, a massive undertaking for, for a company that's made, you know, so much of their money in, in the mining space. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't see any other mining companies doing anything resembling this level of ambition. Uh, yeah. Well, look, I can't talk to you about uh, FMG type of thing because I'm no longer there yeah. in in any in any detail. But there's no question that there's a that Andrew and FMG are playing a leadership role there uh, in in the whole decarbonisation uh, well narrative. Uh, but it's more than narrative. Obviously, it's it's happening and it's coming. And there's a terrific amount of research uh, going on there. So and and you see more and more. I mean, uh, Jamie, you don't want me to bang on about all this, but you've got the ICC. The International Council yep. of uh, Commodities and Mining, and so on and so forth. They've got a, you know, they've got a suite of rules and principles and practices and so on when it comes to climate change, decarb, and so on and so forth. So no worries there. You've got Australian Mining Council. You'll have the various uh, Canadian bodies and so on. So, so it's so so pretty much all within there. Then you come to the so they're the principles, policies, procedures from the from the groups, if you like, and they follow you know World Bank policies, international. National Finance Corporation and so on and so forth. Very good people in there. We've been working on that for a very long period of time and we've yeah. been working on it for a long period of time too. Then you come to the individual companies and you're seeing more and more people now say, well, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050 or, you mm -hmm. know, whether the big companies, small companies and so on and so forth, 2030 or 2035 or whatever it happens to be. A lot of it is to do with energy efficiency. A lot of it is to do with automation, robotics, uh, and 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 saving, you know, uh, saving energy. I mean, we, we go back ten or twenty years, and you know, a hundred and ten dollar oil will 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 drive you to becoming more energy efficient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a, a lot of that is, is a continuation of a lot of that improvement and and technology that we actually uh, adopted. I described it as a have described it in the last twenty years. 
years as a, as a technical and technological revolution there in mining with respect to automation, robotics, uh, and energy efficiency, and it and it's continuing. It has to continue, right? And now the yeah. and now we're you know we, here are the standards. It's 2050. It's Paris. It's decarb. It's it's this and that. So you know we're driving to that. But but we know how to do it, right? We we we've got the resources. We've got the capability. We've got the well, technology is being developed to be able to do all those things so it's not as if we're jumping on a bandwagon here uh it's something that you know we're, we're doing uh and we're going to have to keep doing it and and that's a little bit what i actually wanted to talk about because you know fortescue is obviously leading the charge on this but you know i wonder are we going to be seeing this trickle down throughout the industry and you know you're in a position where you're dealing often with some of the biggest capital allocators in the world, right? The big um, pension funds and the university endowments and the, the people that put large checks of money into private equity firms. And, you know, without getting into any specifics, but are you seeing a shift in priority amongst those capital allocators that yes, ESG, yes, uh, carbon neutral, yes, energy efficiency, is that something that they're starting to demand on this space? Yeah, well, Definitely. The, the dial is being turned up, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all the people that we deal with in terms of, as you say, the capital allocators, they've got an investment committee, they've got boards that they're answering to and so on and so forth. So there's no question the dial is being turned up there. Uh, having said that, our record, our record in terms of uh, ESG, you know, the whole environmental uh, management uh, area, uh, you know, it's a very good one. Our record in terms of governance is a very good one, and the mining the mining industry has actually done terrific work in improving their their environmental performance. They've done terrific work in improving their governance performance with ASX listed rules, TSX listed rules, uh, the, the the regulator generally openness, transparency, and so on. So from a governance perspective, it's a it's a very good uh, record, uh, and from a social uh perspective it's a very good record so so it's not as if it's not as if suddenly we have to start doing this stuff you know we've actually we've actually been doing it for some time now the dial needs to be turned up there's no question about that you have to show demonstrate you know put put commit to doing these sorts of things by a certain time so that that's coming as well but we're up for it sort of we're ready for it so you know it's it's it, we've got the capability to be able to do it Okay. All right. We we've, think. <laughs> okay. We've spoken a lot about the future. Um, I actually want yes. to take a step back and talk a little bit about company building. You've been heavily involved in building two companies that I'm familiar with, Oxiana, Tiger's Realm. Um, so, you know, Oxiana, you said earlier, went from a small, you know, multi-million dollar company to a, a, a several, several billion dollar company in a relatively short time frame. There are very, very few companies that make that jump ever. Uh, even, especially here in Canada, I find even the successful junior explorers or developers typically end up getting bought. So in your opinion, in your experience, what differentiates a junior company that gets bought, even though even if they do find exploration success or development success, to one that is able to make that leap into a producer, into a growing company? How, you know, are there some characteristics? Is it just the asset? Is it just the luck of the cycle? Who who can make that leap and, and who can't? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, a, a good, good question in the sense of uh, there are no specifics, I suppose. It's a little, little bit horses for courses there. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we started to grow the ox, we weren't, we weren't interested in, uh, you know, in just simple exploration success. And now it's somebody else's turn. In other words, we, we'd put people together there uh, that were capable of taking things all the way through. In other words, you've got a good exploration team, you've got good, good building team, and a good operating team. So in other words, it was our objective from the very beginning to convert to uh, an Australia, Asia, Pacific, explorer, developer, producer. So that from the very beginning, that's what we wanted to do. I mean, if you get uh, if you get offers that you can't refuse along the way, then that's fine too. But but some people at the other extreme, Jamie, the, the, so the good exploration people, you know, their objective is to make the discovery and then go. Mm-hmm. So, so they go. Somebody else's turn to develop it, you know, because that's not their, that's not their expertise. So they then would like to go and then do another one somewhere, you know. So the, and and the junior exploration group, there's a lot of those. But then you get to the some of the mid tier producers and so on. And there, that's where you see uh, more of of those people get get all the way through or as far uh, as they possibly can. Right now, actually, uh, you're quite right. There's been a lot of absorption going on over the past 20 years, for yeah. example, in copper. You can't find, you know, some of these mid-tier uh, copper producers. You've got the big guys. You know, how are you going to invest in copper? You've got Rio Tinto, BHP, Glencore, uh, Anto, uh, you know, Tech, for Freeport, and, and, and some of these guys, right? But, but then where do you go next? You know, not that many there. So yeah. that's something that, that, that hasn't been lost on us uh, because we, we do have copper assets inside uh, our EMR uh, group. So that's, that's something that we're looking at right now. So, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are people, uh, young people within the mining space. A lot of yes. them would love to build a company someday. A lot of them have the ambitions to build operating companies. Is there something, if you're just a guy right now, maybe you're an accountant, maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're just an entrepreneur, you've got a dream of doing this someday. Are there some things that they should be keeping in mind in terms of starting this, in terms of you know, what stage of assets should they be looking at? How do they build this sort of team of professionals? What are the, I know I'm massively oversimplifying this process, but what are yep. the sort of the pillars that really need to stand out? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, just just a couple of things. First of all, my advice to uh, people who who who've survived the who've survived this chat so far, the <laughs> 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 young, younger people, uh, is you know look very closely at this industry because it's a wonderful, wonderful industry and it's got a fabulous future. Absolutely fabulous. I say we're in for multiple decades of good, strong commodity growth, inevitably unbridled humps and bumps along the way. And it's a very exciting industry. It's international. Uh, it's, it's scientific. It's it's commercial. It's It's got all of those things associated uh, with it, you know. So so it's, it's something people, you know, we need more people. To, in in the industry, right? Committed and devoted to it, whether it's at the technical end or whether it's at the financial end, the commercial end, 
research end and so on. We need we need more and more uh, people uh, in the industry. Okay, so that that's one thing. But but to um, to actually to to build your business to you know to do the entrepreneurial thing if you like. I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> people no, no. people obviously some are ha happy to go through a very successful and rewarding career inside a bigger company, smaller company, and so on and so forth, or a bank for that matter, or a research group in the in the mineral space. You see you see plenty of those people. So very very good people, and I've met so many of them. Um, but to actually, if if people are bent on uh, getting, you know, putting assets together uh, and then developing and listing them uh, and growing a business in the same way that people like Robert Friedland uh, and, and Andrew Forrest and, and various others have actually done over, over a period of time. The, the, the best way to do that is, is, you know, get good experience at the big end of town. As I say, I was very lucky. I started at the big end of town, then went to the small end, small end of town uh, where you where you do everything yourself mm -hmm. uh, type of thing. So it was a fabulous experience and it really gives you good grounding. Right. So you you know what goes on in the in the big end. So you learn the discipline. Uh, you, you know, you learn all of the things about the business. And then at the small end of town, you learn how to survive, you know, day <laughs> day after day. Day. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's so important to be able to have that and 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 working with the people. I mean, I'm very lucky again, Jamie, to have worked with people in Rio Tinto. I'm still working with them. Work with people in in Oxiana, still working with them. Working with people inside uh, EMR Capital. You know, I I feel so lucky to be able to have that great capability surrounding me. Okay, Prop, I'm propped up by them completely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And how? Okay. So how many people from EM, EMR uh, have you worked with since the Rio Tinto days? Is there many in there from that? Oh, yeah. yeah have come all the way through. Tony. Yeah, they've come, come all the way through, you know, more or less. So, you know, um, Tony and Tony Manini, Jason Chang, uh, Robbie Burns, Ian Smith, all, all, all of these people. And, um, you know, again, just to feel lucky and, and humble, actually, right, uh, to, to have you know, the experience of, of working with those guys. So it's been a, it's been a very good continuum. And that, that's so important in our business because it is, as I say, it's, it's technical, it's commercial, it's financial, it's big, it's volatile, uh, it's remote, you know, so it's got, it's got risk associated with it. <laughs> so, you know, that, that doesn't, that always gets a run. So you do need that, that quality uh, people. You mentioned earlier um, one of the pillars you look for in investment is a stable jurisdiction. Um, yes. But in you know previous companies you've worked with and built, you've worked in some challenging jurisdictions. You've worked throughout Asia. You've worked in Russia, I believe, with, with Tiger's Realm. What is your view on sort of, from an entrepreneurial perspective, let's look at it this way, from yeah. sort of frontier jurisdictions and the, I guess, the geological opportunities that exist there, versus um, stable jurisdictions where maybe the, the geology has been a little more picked over, but you have, you know, very defined rules and laws and regulations and, and all the things that make operating in life a little more simpler. Is, yep. What do you think about that? Should a certain type of person be doing one or the other? Do you want to only be focused on stable jurisdictions now? How do you weigh that math uh, in your mind when you're looking at an investment opportunity? Well, look again. Good question, and and it could be long answer. But the, uh, you know, the the briefs of it, I suppose, are, 
uh, first of all, you have to go where the orb bodies are. So, you know, it's a, it's a geological uh, thing from that perspective. So you must go to uh, various places. Uh, you, you, want to, you want to see some mining background there, for example. Uh, you'd like to see sort of mining-friendly uh, jurisdictions. You like countries with infrastructure. You like people, uh, countries with good uh, quality, technically qualified uh, people uh, and and you know and and as you say the stability right you need to see stability there in terms of rules and regulation now now it it doesn't matter whether you're operating in Queensland or Victoria or Western Australia or Zambia or or Indonesia and so on the governments governments come and go a bit you know and mm. when, when they're short when they're short and you're making some money you, you can rest assured they're going to put the bite on you for something or other whether it's a, further tax or it's only a surtax and it won't last very long or increase royalty or something or other. Yeah, so yeah. you know that's going to happen to you anyway, wherever you are. Uh, and But you're okay with that, right? At the end of the day, you're there, you're one of your stakeholders. So, you know, it's very important to make sure that they are, uh, you know, they're happy uh, in the in the business as well. So, so from that perspective, uh, I think that it, you need to develop up the relationship. You mentioned uh, Laos and the Lao People's Democratic Republic. There, I mean, small country, not much mining, very good uh, project. You know, very good project there at Sepong. We spent a lot of time working with the government. We spent a lot of time working with the provincial uh, community. We were, we spent a lot of time working with the local communities, and and we won their support. Most important was winning the support of the people on the ground, because once you've got that, you'll get the provincial support. And once you've got that, you'll get the national uh, support. So if you've got the support, the cooperation, the respect, the understanding of the of the people there, that's what I say, a stable uh, you know, and workable uh, system or a regime. So um, um, that means you talk about trickle down. That means you really got to get on the ground. Can you... Can you work with the people on the ground? Can you build trust, respect, confidence, and so on? Once you can, once you're satisfied, you can do that. Then you, we believe, you can build a successful uh, and sustainable competitive business. So, what do you look for? You look for all of those things that, that uh, we talked about. Uh, you mentioned uh, Russia, Laos, we've got Zambia, Australia. So, we try to be in sort of well recognized and again it's not just up to us you our, our american investors for example mm -hmm. and various co-investors that we've got the banks have got a view about all of that as well you know there's certain places that they won't go so you know got to take all of those sorts of things into account right now we're in zambia we're in spain we're in the uk we're in australia uh and we're in america love to be in canada Jamie, if you've got something up there in Canada for us to have a look at, we'd be very happy to come up. Well, maybe we should uh, have a conversation after this, <laughs> after this <laughs> recording. And, you know, there's a few entrepreneurs, though, that are consistently able to get things done in places that nobody else seems to. You know, I think of the Lunding Group in Sudan. I think of Robert Friedland in, in Mongolia and the Congo. Is there something you see these guys doing that few others are able to replicate? Is it this engaging with governments and communities? Is it simply, you know, really immense access to capital you know is it is there is there is there some secret sauce that they're doing that nobody else seems to get I, you know i'm i know i'm grasping at straws here but it always boggles my mind that there's only ever a few people that can sort of consistently pull off these jurisdictional hail marys sort of so to speak yes, yes. Uh, 
Very good. The thing is, um, you you must have the ore body, the deposit. So you must mm -hmm. you must be sufficiently visionary to actually understand that this is going to be a very significant ore body, very significant long term sustainable competitive uh, business, right? So that was recognised by Robert in Mongolia, uh, and recognised by Robert again in the in the DRC, Andrew in the uh, in the Pilbara, Andrew for the Pilbara with uh, with with FMG. So you've got mm -hmm. to have that. You've got to have that secret source. You know, the, to to understand it, and then of course the the uh, the next big part of it is actually you know working you know just just you don't send anybody else you know you they want to see you they want to see the the the, the person in charge here right so you can't whether whether it's the prime minister or the or the uh, the people in the mines department or the people on the on the ground in the province or the or the leaders of the of the community they want to see you and that's a that's a very big difference with people like uh, Robert uh, Andrew myself and and various others that that we know of that they actually get out there and and they build that trust and confidence all the way through the uh, all the way through the jurisdiction and 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 able to get there at a moment's notice if there's a if there's a problem right you just have to go right mm -hmm. where is he he was supposed to be here at nine o'clock this morning well he's in you know he's on site in the rainforest of north sumatra because they needed to see him you know? <laughs> yeah the chief wanted to talk to him so that's where he is right now you know so okay all right owen uh we've been at this for almost an hour now i really appreciate your time if it's okay with you i'm going to ask you a couple of sort of rapid fire questions for for short short questions can be short or long answers, however you, however you think. <laughs> um, but they're going to be somewhat fun questions. Luck plays a big role in the mining space. How do you get lucky in mining? Yeah, the Gary Player answer, which is, you know, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get type of thing. So you just got to keep... Uh, you've got to keep doing it and you've got to, and you've actually got to have your eye. You mentioned the future, right? Future facing, you've got to have your eye on the future all the time, Jamie, whether it's the decarb or whether it's EV or whether it's the renewables and so on and so forth, you must be there because it takes some to, you know, supply chains take a long time. So you need to position yourself early. Okay. What advice do you have for people in the space? You know, maybe they've graduated from university. Maybe they're working for a big company, whatever but they want to keep learning. They want to keep building their career. What should they be doing? Conferences, books, whatever. What, what do you recommend? Yeah. All of those things, all of the technical stuff that, that, that people in those professions uh, do, no worries. Um, you know, stay with it in terms of the, uh, of the mining business. And, and some of the things that, that I've been so lucky with in, in my uh, career, if you can call it that, is to work with wonderful, wonderful people at Rio Tinto and, and actually understand that, respect it, and be humble. So you've got to be able to got to be able to do that, and you've got to you've got to have the uh, you've got to sharpen the saw, as Stephen uh, Covey would say. You know the seven yeah, habits, yeah. and then the eighth habit. Uh, you know, built to last, and all of these things. Got to pick up all of those things. We remember. You're too young to remember in search of excellence. You know that was that was a that was a bit of a master blaster book uh, in terms of what made excellent companies. So you know you've got to look at all of those sort of things and absorb it all. But ultimately, you've got to come with a model. You must have a model. You must have a model that says this is how we're going to do this stuff, right? Whether it's our rule of eight. Uh, whether it's your sort of moral and ethical uh, compass as, as part of your, your rule of eight, you must have a model and you must stick with that model. Okay. Is there anything you see 
actually, let me frame this a better way. Is there any advice you constantly see given in the mining space that you actually think is bad advice? <laughs> well, look, um, some because you've got volatility, right, in the in the market. Um, but but if you've done your work well, uh, and you 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 you're true to your model, you do have the tons, you do have the grade, and you do have that absolute. Um, conviction that it is going to be long-term competitive, you must stay with it. You must stay with it. You must be persistent. You must persevere. Uh, you must stick it out, even though you got the humps and the bumps. You know, whether it was a GFC, whether it's COVID, uh, whether it's some other interruption, hump or bump along the way type of thing, because because you're looking for a long-term. Stay with that vision. Stay with the project. If if you've done enough work demonstrate to yourself and all of those people who surround you that this is the thing for us you must stay with it because you know you're going to get you know you know you've got people be chasing you right you you know the people will always be trying to take it away from you mm -hmm. one way or the other so you know you must absolutely stay with it all right last one is there anything that you believe that your peers in the space or otherwise think is crazy It'll be about the future, about the space that other people think is, you know, kind of a wild uh, idea or vision, but that you're convinced of. Look, I don't, I don't think so. I think we've got a lot of people. Um, uh, you know, we, what what we do here is all of those things that, that I've described, uh, and and you know, it's a highly competitive business. There's no question about that. We're up for that. I mean, we're we're all the same, really. Mm -hmm. We're up for that, you know. So, but I don't I don't think anybody uh, is out there saying, well, what these guys are doing is absolutely bloody wrong, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think. I think private equity is a bit different in, in mining. You know, there's, there's less, there's more private equity in, in sort of hamburger shops than there is in uh, in mining. You know, because of those those things that I mentioned. You know, the time frame, the volatility. Uh, you know, highly highly technical, remote locations, and and so on and so forth. So, people will say, well, you know, maybe a few people say, what are they doing that for? Well. We're doing it because we know we can do it. We know we can be successful. There's not that many people in the space and we know that we can actually, we've got a model that we can get in and we can get out. And you've got to be able to pick winners, Jamie. You've got to be able to pick winners. And the best way to pick winners is, is you know, know your subject so well, you know, and and therefore, because you can't afford to, as I said, you can't afford to, you're not BHP, that you can hide a, a, a bad performer behind a good performer or, mm. you know, a big company like that. So you're pretty, a bit naked in the PE world. So you've got to be absolutely rigorous to make sure you've got the right asset and the right people. All right. And do the right and do the right <laughs> interviews with great communicators. <laughs> I think we I think we nailed that on this one. I think we got that one right. So Owen, really thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know you're busy. This has been really, really valuable for me. Very much appreciated. Good on you. Is there anything <laughs> I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything you'd like to say to the audience that I forgot about or you'd like to comment on? Not, not really. I mean, I, I do enjoy it. And anytime people are interested in, you know, follow-ups or questions, what did he, what did he say? Does he really mean that? You know, then, then happy to follow up. Just remember, it is the Chinese New Year of the metal ox, the mighty metal ox. So it's going to be a great year for metals, Jamie. Yeah, and I'm actually an ox from 1985, so I think it's going to be an even better year for me, hopefully. <laughs> even better. <laughs> All right. Great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Owen.
Did you enjoy today's podcast? Me too. If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.